Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to have you today in a sixth uh, edition, part six of this series, The Table. Uh, we'll be jumping in in just a moment. Uh, first, let me just say uh, we love you, Nacogdoches, and we love you, Duncan and Dieball. Hey, Duncan Unit, I'm going to be joining you September 28th. So invite your friends, invite your cellmates. We always say at Timber Creek, uh, invite Fran to church. Friends, relatives, associates, neighbors. And we change it to invite Frank to church uh, because of our prison campuses, friends, relatives, associates, neighbors, and cellmates. So Frank, Frank or France, I don't know which one, but, but uh, can't wait to be with you guys here in a couple weeks. Uh, we'll see you then. Hey, listen, uh, how many of you grew up saying grace around the table? Okay, it may not be a common occurrence for some of you. Some of you, you never missed a meal without having a prayer, praying over your meal, saying, saying grace. Uh, there are, anybody have kind of a go-to uh, prayer when you say grace to the table? Anybody kind of have a go-to? Uh, God is great, God is good, let us thank, us, thank him for our food, or rub-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, whatever it is. Um, somebody said, no, 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 it's, it's, God, it's God is uh, good, God is great, let us thank him for our plate. Um, okay, well, uh, by his hands we all are fed, thank you for our daily bread, amen. Uh, something that I didn't hear until uh, I came to Lufkin was um, bless this food to the nourishment of our body and our bodies to your service. Those are kind of some repeat things. Sometimes people pray so long that they kind of get ribbed, they kind of get elbowed in the rib, like, oh, well, you know, did you throw in, you know, China in there too? And like everything else, like people can say grace and it's a thanks, amen. And then other times it's uh, long and extended. Uh, People say grace. Why do we do that? What's, what's important about saying grace at the table? Well, obviously, we, it's a good way to consistently go before God, but if we're not careful, it just becomes this routine thing like putting a napkin in your lap or picking up your fork. It's just kind of part of the deal. And saying grace is meant to really focus on one of the most important realities of the Christian faith. It, it, it's really why we don't just pray over the food, it's why it's called saying grace at the table. Today to jump in, I just wanna talk about the massively important but misunderstood word of grace. The, the, the truth about grace is uh, you really can't understand Christianity without it. There are a lot of words in the Bible and a lot of words in Christianity from redemption to restoration to sanctification, baptism, fellowship, uh, all of these different uh, words that are, are critically important but aren't usually in our normal vernacular. And then when we connect to uh, Jesus and the Christian faith, we begin to read the Bible, we come, we come to these words like, what does it really mean? And sometimes I think when it comes to the word grace, we really really don't understand the depths of grace. I wanna tell you why. Because if you really don't understand it, it's really hard for you to show it. And we're living in a culture where it's becoming increasingly more hard, more difficult, and increasingly rare for people to truly extend grace to one another. We don't got time for grace on Facebook. We don't, time, we don't got time for grace in politics. We don't got time for grace in that conversation. We don't got time for grace through the drive-through. 
We don't understand it. If you really understood it, you'd show it because you know how much it means to you. We're gonna unpack grace a little bit today. Uh, in fact, here's our working definition for the word grace if you're taking notes on the app or in our worship guide. Here's what grace is. Grace, it is kindness shown to someone who doesn't deserve it, cannot earn it, and will never, ever be able to repay it. Now, there's more to say about grace. There's way more to say, but you can't say anything less than this. It's nothing less than incredible showing tangibility Tangible kindness to someone who doesn't deserve it, cannot earn it, and will never, ever be able to repay it. Now, in order to unpack this a little bit, we're going to go to a table in the Old Testament. And I really just want to share with you today a story of grace. The key character in the story, there's three main characters in the story, and our first one is King David. First and second Samuel is packed with the monarchy and the development of a nation of Israel where they were truly should have been following God. In fact, the first of the 10 commandments in the wilderness don't have any other gods before me. In other words, don't put your source of significance and hope and stability and trust in anything or anyone else except me. And that was the struggle of the Israelites and that's the struggle of Americans and that's the struggle of the Yanceys to try and find stability and significance and trust and all kinds of other things except our God. We all struggle with that. We try to put that stability and that king of our life in us. In Israel, they wanted to trust God, but they also wanted a God they could kind of see. And so they said, we want a king like everybody else. And they demanded a king. And God said, I'll be your king. They said, we want a king we can see. And so God gave them what they wanted. Careful, sometimes, sometimes you'll get exactly what you want and it may not be what God really wants, but he is willing to allow you to go through some things to learn some stuff. And sure enough, they choose the tallest, the strongest, from, the, from their own eye, what might look like the right king and they choose King Saul. Saul deals with the very beginning of his life in insecurity, and he will lead with insecurity. He will lead with pride and insecurity, trusting in his own hand. And when it comes time for him to be able to be removed from the throne, and David anointed as a little boy as the new king, Saul is going to find out about this new king anointed, and he is going to do whatever he can to stop this from happening because his whole identity is in this idea of being king. And as David grows up and grows into his, his adolescent muscles, he strikes down the giant in the middle of that battlefield and he becomes a Hebrew idol overnight and he is a mercenary warlord for King Saul fighting battles. King Saul gives him his, one of his own daughters as, as a wife and then when David gets too big for Saul's mind, Saul wants to kill him. So David has to flee his own town. He becomes an outlaw in his own nation, has to go to a completely other nation, and he has to live on the run in caves for years as Saul tries to hunt him down like a, like a little dog. All David wanted, he, he had time to kill Saul, never, 
never laid a hand against him because he loved Saul. He, want, he, he saw Saul as like a father figure. All he wanted was to get Saul's approval and all Saul wanted was to get him out of the way so he could stay in charge. Finally, the, the time comes where it's not David that kills Saul, but the Philistine army overpowers Saul. I wonder what would have happened to Israel had he focused on God and focused on the situation at hand instead of his own issues. He could have fortified his army and been against the Philistines, but the Philistines overpowered them because he was distracted. I wonder how many of us are living distracted on some stuff and we're leaving some walls unfortified. We're letting some enemies grow because we're, just, we're, we're, we're focused on chasing things we ought not be chasing, trying to justify things we don't need to justify. And sure enough, they overpower and instead of taking Saul prisoner and violating him, Saul commits suicide there on the battlefield. He falls on his own sword. And Saul and all of his sons, including David's best friend, which was one of Saul's sons, Jonathan, David's best friend is killed in that battle. And now Saul's household has been laid to waste. The next in line, a man by the name of Ishbosheth, is crowned king because you can't have an empty throne. The moment Queen Elizabeth dies, God saved the king. There's got to come another person of, of royalty to take that position so we're not in neutral. Ishbosheth is then, he is murdered in his bed. The kingdom is at a terrible situation. David now is coming to fully reign in the middle of all this. This is where we pick up the story in 2 Samuel 9. David is now at the height of his kingdom. He has uh, solidified his borders. He has fortified his army. He has become the, the king of the nation of Israel. And here's how chapter nine unfolds. So David asked some, some guys around him, some of his wise counsel, hey, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul? Now, when a king asks that, is there anyone left in the house of Saul? Okay, they've really been the enemy to him. If you're a normal king and you're saying, is there anybody left in the house of Saul? If you're the normal king, you're gonna go take them because they could be a threat to your throne. You're gonna go, you're gonna go slight, you know, cut their throat in front of everybody. You're gonna go hang them in the street because you're gonna get rid of anybody that's gonna be a potential issue to your kingdom. But this is not David because David doesn't represent the normal king. He actually represents the king of kings. He is a shadow of the king that will come. And his name is Jesus. And David says, is there anyone left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake. David understands that kindness is not weakness, that grace is something unbelievably powerful. So he asks this question, anybody I could show kindness to? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. Everybody say Ziba. It's so good. Now, they summoned him to appear before David. They called out, hey, we summoned you. That means you got to show up and you got to get here. So whatever way you got to get here, get here. Just put that in the back of your Rolodex, okay? Summoned him to appear before David. Now, Ziba answered the king. He shows up to David. He says, yes, there is still a son of Jonathan. Your best friend had a son. He's still alive. 
He's crippled in both feet. He has a son. He's crippled in both feet. Well, where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, well, he's at the house of Maker, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. This young son's name was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. I won't make you say it. <laughs> um, just call him Mephib. I don't know. Mephibosheth is living the rest of his life in Lodabar. Let me talk to you about Mephibosheth for a moment. Let me unpack this life that is less than lustrous, uh, a life that is less than desired, a life that's seen some heartache and trouble and turmoil and tragedy and trauma. It didn't start that way. Mephibosheth started life in a golden bassinet. He was royalty. He was the grandson of the king. How many of you grandpas and grandmas, you, you know you treat those grandbabies a little bit different than you treated your own kids? How many of you kids know that your mom and dad treat your kids different than they treated you? Anybody? 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 Yeah, exactly. Exactly. My dad tells a story that, that I was begging to get a mohawk because Mr. T was so cool back in the day and I was begging to get a mohawk, and my dad grew up having to get a buzz cut all the time, and finally his mom let him grow his hair out to where, you know, he's flipping it. Anybody have kids now just flipping their hair all the time? And my grandpa Bill would look in the back seat, and Donnie Joe and Stevie Jean and Tara Lynn, my dad, they'd sit in the back of that Oldsmobile, and they'd all be flipping their hair as little kids. And, and my grandpa Bill said, if, you, if I see you flip that hair one more time, and uh, sure enough, like the next day, they all got uh, buzz cuts because he didn't want to see that flipping of hair because he wanted it right, you know. Well, when I was about eight or nine years old and I'm begging for a mohawk, uh, my dad said, no, you're not getting a mohawk. No, I'm not giving you a mohawk. You're, no, we're not doing a Mr. T thing. I stayed a, a few days at grandma and grandpa's house and when they came to pick me up, my grandpa came over to my dad and said, son, you ought to let the boy get a mohawk. You know how grand, and, and dad's like, you wouldn't even let me flip my hair, you know. If you're the, you know, if that's a grandson of just you, what about being the grandson of a king? He wanted for nothing, servants upon servants, bodyguards on the playground, bodyguards getting sick to their stomach, riding the, the merry-go-round at the local kindergarten because they're taking care of Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth. But in a few days' time, Mephibosheth goes from moments of celebration around family to the sirens of war going off in the streets and absolute chaos and rubble and death and blood. Because in a few days' time, not only is his grandfather dying on the battlefield, but all of his uncles and his own daddy are killed in battle. So he goes from royalty to now he's orphaned and he has no father. He has no one to take care of him and he's just a little kid. 
As those sirens go off, you know the statement, keep calm and carry on, was a, a big slogan during the war in British time because when the air raids would happen, they put all of these pictures. What we just kind of do is like keep calm and drink coffee had a much more serious beginning that in the middle of air raids, in the middle of disaster, in the middle of fear, keep calm, carry on. Keep calm, carry on. And those are the banners across the walls of Jerusalem, but you can't keep calm anymore as the Philistines are now pushing into the city area, the city limits. And one of Mephibosheth's uh, helpers, a maidservant, scoops up Mephibosheth, you can read this back in 2 Samuel 6, and begins to run away from the raiders, run away from getting pillaged. She's trying to save actually the now king. He's the only living heir to the throne. Little Mephibosheth is now King Mephibosheth, whether anybody recognizes it or not. And as the maidservant is running to try and protect little King Mephibosheth, somehow she drops him and falls on him and cripples his feet. And he is disabled. She tries to hide him away by going out of Jerusalem several miles into what would be the lowest place, what would be uh, the, um, the, the worst of the worst area, barely surviving, barely, barely making ends meet, bar barely just eking away existence. He was royalty, but now he's orphaned and he's disabled and he is living in Lodabar. Lodabar, the very name, means no pasture and no communication. No pasture is very simple. Without a pasture, you cannot feed the animals. If you can't feed the animals, the animals die. If the animals die, you have no food. If you have no food and you can't feed yourself, you die. It is a place of waste. It is a place of wilderness. Not only is it a place of wilderness and no food, no sustenance, no nourishment, no place to be able to, to work the land. Land was the greatest commodity you could have. It was the gold. It was the currency. And he has nothing. Royalty, who's an orphan, disabled boy, living in no pasture and also no communication. There is no communication to Lodabar. There's nobody that sees him. And this may not sound too familiar, but do you know that this is our story? This story is our story, the story of humanity. Birthed by God in a perfect world as sons and daughters of him. We are orphaned by sin, separated from our father. There is a disability in us of a brokenness that to, to no fault of our own, just the reality of life, we are broken. We are impaired in our freedom. And we, without being reconnected to royalty, live in a dry wasteland.
with, with communication that was difficult to maintain with God. The only way we could maintain communication with God was through someone else and through a system of sacrificing and sacrificing and sacrificing. So Jesus comes, pays the ultimate sacrifice, pulls us out of our own wilderness, pulls us out of our own Lodabar. He wipes away our infirmities. He heals our main disease, which is our sin issue. He pulls us from being orphans and he calls us adopted sons and daughters of the Most High King. It's our story. We are Mephibosheth. I also wanna say that some of you, it may not be a sin issue, but somewhere in life, somebody dropped you. Somebody dropped you. They hurt you, they wounded you. It impaired your freedom. Impaired your freedom emotionally, impaired your freedom mentally. Maybe even impaired your, your, your freedom physically. Wounded of no fault of your own. You just were dropped, crushed. You put your trust in them. Their hands would care for you day in and day out and then they broke their trust. Maybe they don't even realize. They didn't mean, maybe they didn't even mean to but you were dropped. And I want you to know that the king sees you today. The story goes on. King David had him brought from Lodabar. Notice that when it was Ziba, they summoned him. But when it was Mephibosheth, they brought him. Why? Because you can't, you can't summon someone who cannot bring themselves. Mephibosheth did not have the capacity to bring himself in front of the king. So they had to bring him to that place. This is a awkward moment for Mephibosheth. Either they have to place him over the back of the donkey and he has to ride or they position him somehow. He can't get up and can't get down. He, 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 his mobility is incredibly impaired. It, it's, it's, a, it's a vulnerable position. It's, it may be even embarrassing for another man to come up and grab now who is in his early 20s for them to take Mephibosheth and put him over a stronger man's shoulders and, and place him on the donkey. There's, there's this discomfort of Mephibosheth. And he's brought from the house of Maker, son of Amiel. Now, when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. Now he's disabled, he's lame, he can't truly bow down. So the scripture gives us what's happening, but it doesn't give us all the scripture because now we hear what David, we don't give all the essence of the story because the very next line, David says, don't be afraid. So it wasn't just a bowing down, there is a trembling, there may be a falling forward. We don't exactly know, what we do know is he is, he is in, the, in the surrendered position in front of King David. Why? Because he thinks, 
Probably I'm here to die. Probably David's going to have his final way. I'm the last living heir of a throne that'll never be mine. The entire community, even, even the, the, the throne would have pushed me behind the curtains if I were, if I were uh, crippled in the kingdom. And now David's going to slit my throat and this is it. This is it. And David says, don't be afraid. I want to give you grace. I wanna show you kindness that you didn't earn, you may not even deserve, and you won't even be able to repay for the sake of your father, Jonathan. There is grace given to all of us, not earned, not deserved, and never able to be repaid, not for your sake, but for the sake of the son of the king because of what Jesus has done for you and for me. And here's what David says to Mephibosheth. Can you, can you imagine if you're Mephibosheth and, and he says, I'm gonna show you kindness and you're like, what? When's the last time anyone showed a poor crippled boy in Lodabar kindness? He says, yep. I'm gonna restore to you, listen to this. I'm gonna restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul. And you will always eat at my table. In this moment, in this passage, there are two grace-filled promises from not only King David, but our king. And here are the two promises that are displayed to Mephibosheth. And because we're Mephibosheth, these are promises displayed to us as well from God the Father. The first one is this. I'm gonna restore to you all the land of your grandfather. This is speaking of what you lost in the battle, what you lost in the war, what was rightfully yours but stripped away. I am going to give you back not just land. I'm really, here's what I'm doing. I'm giving you inheritance. I'm giving you your inheritance. You don't have to live with no pasture and no communication and completely disconnected. I am going to give you inheritance. And that is the promise, one of the blessings and promises of a grace-filled king to you and me, that what we try to earn, what we try to make, what we try to do has nothing to do with our retirement or our inheritance, what is handed down. But because of what Jesus has done on the cross, the inheritance that I now am an heir to the throne of God. I am a son or daughter of the king when I accept that position. I can walk around as an orphan or I can receive that blessing. I can receive that adoption. And now I am an heir to the riches of God. What? And I wonder how many of us get ticked off when we lose a $20 bill. Dang it, where'd that $20 bill go? And yet, if you, if, if you lost a 20 today, if you lost a 20, let me back it up and make it a little bit more personal. Uh-oh. <laughs> we talk about tithe, 10% of our income, given to the storehouse for the kingdom of God. It is all own, owned by him, but we give that tithe. It was like, ugh, I don't know. That's, that's, that's a lot. That's a big deal. It's a big chunk. If you viewed yourself as an heir to the riches of the God of the cosmos, would it be a little easier 
to give one out of 10 Oreos to Jesus? Yeah. But see, we don't see it that way because we've got some disabilities in our heart that cause a, a, a uh, impairment of freedom to live like we're really free. And so we kind of get that mentality of that orphan. I got to fight for everything I have. I got to protect everything I have. It's all mine. And I don't want, I'm not going to let anybody else take anything else away from me. But you have an inheritance, everybody. When you accept Jesus, you're invited to his table. The second promise is this. You will always eat at my table. And not only do we get promised an inheritance, but we get promised intimacy. There's something intimate about being invited into someone's home, isn't there? There's something intimate about sharing a meal. It's why when you go on a first date, I remember my first date with Janet. I remember a lot of my first dates, but I really remember my first date with Janet. And picked her up, she with black, black shirt, jeans, Doc Martin boots. They were cool, cool boots back in the day. Silver necklace, and I mean, just a smile. I just, I call them root beer candy eyes. You ever had root beer candy? They're not the greatest candy in the world, but when you, when you, when you suck on those candies a little bit and then you pull them out, they're all shiny and stuff. That, like, that's the color of my wife's eyes, root beer candy eyes. That's what she has. Root beer candy eyes. I'm gonna, I'm gonna write a song at some point. She's like, shut up and preach, please. And uh, uh, like picked her up. We went to La Madeline's French Bakery there in Dallas. Had never even heard of it. Now you can get one at the mall. I mean, it's like, you know, but it was, it was high class for us. High class. And uh, I mean, I just, we looked into each other's eyes and we talked and we smiled. And after that, we just walked around the, the river uh, there in Las Colinas for a couple hours. We sat at a picnic table and talked about the future. I asked her to marry me that night. No, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't do it that fast. But it was pretty fast. I promise. And because I won't go let this one go. Um, there was just something about sharing a meal, though, together that caused us to just bond and begin to build respect and relationship, and then intimacy. You have intimacy with the Father. You have a closeness. You don't have to. He's not the big man upstairs. He's not just the good Lord above. He's, he's a king that will be a father to you that you can sit around the table with him and his son and be a son, be a daughter. It's intimacy. So Mephibosheth bowed down and said, because of all this, if you're Mephibosheth, you've been living your life in Lodabar, what are you gonna say to the king after doing all of these things for you? Like, oh, thank you. Whoa, this is all, are you kidding me? Man! Mephibosheth says what a lot of us say. What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? What is it, who am I? I'm nothing but a, I'm a dog. You had to fetch me. You had to bring me here. I'm a dead dog. Why would you even do this? <laughs> you know what we do with those two grace-filled promises of our king? We self-sabotage. 
We self-sabotage our king's kindness. And here's how we do it, write it down. The first way we do it is when you think he would never invite you to the table. When you think there's no way that he would keep on inviting me to the table because of what I did, what I've experienced, where I am, the struggle that is real, that continues to be real, that I wish wasn't real. And I, 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 there's no way he would ever want to invite me to the table. And what you deal with is not just a guilt in something that you've done, but a, a shame in who you feel like you are. There's a big deal between guilt versus shame. There's a big difference between feeling guilty and then wearing shame that Jesus wore for you on the cross. Guilt is a good thing, a good thing that, that can have a good outcome if you deal with it appropriately. Shame never has a good outcome. It's not in your notes, but you, you could jot a couple down that guilt is focused on the what, shame is focused on the who. So guilt is something that was done, but when you have shame, you, you feel like it's, it's you, it's not the situation. Do you know what's so interesting about the first man and woman ever on the planet, Adam and Eve? That when they were born into a perfect place, when they were birthed, created by God in a perfect place, the Bible says they were both naked and they felt great. No, they felt excited. They felt happy. They felt naked. I don't, no, they were both naked and they felt no shame. There is something powerful about being completely innocent and vulnerable and uncovered before our God. They felt no shame. But when they sinned, what is the first thing they did? They tried to cover stuff up. They had to cover up, and they covered up their most vulnerable places. That's what shame does. So we can't be vulnerable with each other anymore. We cover up the intimacy. We cover up the, the places that we're uncomfortable. We cover up stuff that, that we don't want anybody else to see. Instead of, instead of being open and honest, we cover and we sow fig leaves. Some of us, we got, we got fig leaves covering everything. Big job, that, that next job ain't nothing but a fig leaf. Money in the bank, fig leaf. Next relationship could be a fig leaf. Trying, trying to, to make sure our kids succeed could be a fig leaf because we're dealing with shame. Guilt says, I did something bad, but shame says, I am something bad. Guilt can be like a stain on a shirt. It can be washed. You can wash guilt away. Jesus will wash it away, but shame, it's like, it's like those crippled feet of Mephibosheth. It feels permanent. It feels permanent. And Mephibosheth says, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Now, how does David respond? David doesn't even listen to his moment. David doesn't say, well, no, no, no. He, he just, here's what he does. King summoned Ziba, Saul's steward. He said to him, look, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him 
because he can't farm it for himself. You're going to farm it for him, and he's royalty, so he doesn't need to farm it for himself. This is what you're called to do. This is what he's called to do, and you're going to bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, is going to always eat at my table. Not just today, not just tomorrow, not just next week, not just next month. Always eat at my table. Got it? Okay? Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Listen, Ziba had 15 sons, and even Ziba, the servant, had 20 servants. This is no low on the totem pole dude, okay? I just want you to catch that. Sure enough, Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. Now, here is a hidden story within the story that you don't ever find out unless you read the Bible. If you just read this and you just came to church and you never kind of investigated and you kind of looked before and after and got the fuller picture, all you would see was camera B shot and you wouldn't see a wide angle drone shot because 15 years later, this whole situation is gonna come back to David. 15 years later, one of David's sons, Absalom, is forming a coup d'etat. He's splitting the kingdom. He has is, he is pushed David out of his own palace. His own son has pushed David out of the palace, and David is having to run for his life. And we pick up 15 years later, and David now is on the run. King David is on the run, and look, what, look who shows up 15 years later. David had gone a short distance beyond the summit, and there was who? Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, waiting to meet him. He had a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 cakes of raisins, 100 cakes of figs, and a skin of wine. Parte! Now the king asked Ziba, well, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, well, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and fruit are the men to eat, and the wine is to refresh those who become exhausted in the wilderness. Almost sounds like he's got this speech down. The king asked, where's Mephibosheth? You're supposed to be taking care of Mephibosheth. Where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba said to him, he's staying in Jerusalem because he thinks, well, today the Israelites will restore to me my grandfather's kingdom. What does David do? David is a shadow, but he is not the son of God. He's a king, but he's not the king of kings. David says, okay, well then all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. <laughs> now, what I gave to Mephibosheth, that sucker, he's gonna try and form a coup d'etat on me too? I, gave, I let him eat at my table. He says, now everything is yours. And what does Ziba do? Ziba does the same thing Mephibosheth did 15 years earlier. I humbly bow, Ziba said. May I find favor in your eyes, my lord, the king. Hmm. Now what you'll find out is that actually when David rides back into town, he goes to find Mephibosheth. Would you be scared if you were Mephibosheth? <laughs> but the deal is, 
The Bible says clearly, Mephibosheth has not showered. He did not cut his fingernails. He had not cut his hair. He was in a disheveled place. Why? If you're trying to vie for the position of king, you're gonna try and clean things up. And we find him still in trouble. And Mephibosheth says to the king, I can't saddle my own donkey. Ziba, Ziba betrayed me. He's trying to make it sound like he just wanted my stuff. See, here's the other issue. When you think you can earn your place at the table, Mephibosheth's issue was shame. Ziba was trying to earn his place at the table and his issue was pride. I deserve this. How many of us think that we deserve a little bit more of a place at the table than this other person because I haven't done as much stuff as they've done and you way underestimate the reality of your own sin condition. That, that, okay, you didn't do this or you didn't do that and they did that and you feel like all of a sudden you've climbed the ladder of deserving of grace and I wanna tell you, you will not ever be able to earn a place and it's pride and you will fall when you deal with pride. Pride is the chief sin. It says, I wanna be God instead of you. That's what pride is. I wanna be my own God and that's what Ziba, Ziba deserved. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. He deserved to be at that table. More than, more, more than the, the guy that the, the very first things out of his words says, well, there's a son, he's crippled. All, all, all Ziba could see was the disability in Mephibosheth. He did not see the value. He did not see the grace. He did not have what it took. He didn't see what the king saw. Ziba thought, well, I deserve to be up here because I've taken care of all this stuff. Pride will destroy you, everybody. And it sneaks up. And here's the deal. People that deal with pride usually aren't saying, I struggle with pride. Usually you don't even know. That's hard, isn't it? To deal with something you don't even realize is there. That's why we have to pray, search me, oh God. That's why we have to see our inheritance and intimacy with the Father so that he can speak to us through the pride that we have proximity at the table so that he can speak and say, hey, can I talk to you for a minute about some stuff in your life? And sure enough, the story goes, after Mephibosheth was pulled up off the ground of the king's court, placed back in his chair, that Mephibosheth lived then in Jerusalem. The king called all of the U-Haul and the Pinsky trucks. Didn't even need them. All he, all he had was a little sack because he had nothing. Mephibosheth got a, a bedroom in the palace and every single day was at the king's table. Could you see it? Several of David's sons come in from battle and the table is set, all kinds of chairs and they're all sitting and they're ready to eat and David says, wait a second, because down the hall you can hear the crutches of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth comes into the royal dining room and he 
hops over and lays the crutches on the wall and he's helped to the table and he sits down and as he scooted in to the table, everybody's there. Everybody's the same at the table. He's one of the sons. And look what's interesting in this story. The very last scripture of this story. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. That's where you say, the end, fade to black, roll the credits. Isn't it interesting though that the author has to remind us again, he was crippled in both feet. He was crippled in both feet. When you're invited to the table, it doesn't always mean that everything in your life will go the way you want it to go. It doesn't mean that every issue you deal with, you'll never have to deal with again, but you're still invited to the king's table and you have access to the king's kindness despite your condition. You don't have to heal yourself and you don't have to be all put together. You just have to accept the invitation to his kindness. That's why the author of Hebrews says it like this. Therefore, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. How could Mephibosheth even approach the throne? You couldn't even approach it. Though that's why Jesus approached you first. Before you could ever approach Jesus, he approached you first. At both locations, at all locations, would you pray with me? Would you close your eyes and bow your heads? Two prayers before we receive communion today. The first is this. I, I need to accept the invitation of coming to the king's table. What that means is you've been living separated from God and he's been inviting you, but you've just not accepted the invitation. Here's how you accept it. You believe he is who he says he is. And you invite him to be the Lord of your life. So if that's you, maybe you just say, Jesus, I surrender to you today. I believe you are who you say you are, the son of the living God, and I give my life to you today. Thank you, Jesus, for inviting me to be a son, be a daughter of you. Take my sin away, the stuff that impairs my freedom, in fact, keeps me a slave. I want to live for you now. As we're praying in the room, maybe there's a struggle, maybe of shame or maybe of pride, maybe a feeling like a, a less worthy to receive his grace, or maybe you've struggled giving grace. If that's you, maybe in one of our rooms, you just raise a hand. It's shame or it's giving grace or it's something, and I, I want to pray over that. Anybody in this room or our rooms, I know I struggle. Jesus, help me to give the kind of grace you've given. Help me to not wear the shame that you wore on the cross for me. Thank you, Jesus, that because of what you did on the cross, your body broken, your blood spilled, that we can come to your table. Thank you, Jesus. At, at all of our locations, I'm gonna invite you to stand where you are and stay where you are and take the elements of communion in your hand.
And over the next few moments, I'm just going to invite you to take the wrapper from the top. There's two wrappers. The first is very thin and it, and it unwraps the wafer. And then the second one opens the juice. And I want you just to hold those for a moment. This is considered the Lord's table. We do this in remembrance of what he did. Why? Because of the grace poured out. How can you trust in the king? How can you trust that he's not gonna put you at the table and then poison you, put you at the table and then come behind you and cut your throat because of what his son went through for you? His son went through all of that so you could experience a place at the table. The bread representing his body, beaten, crucified. His blood, the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. Now, before we take this, it's important that we recognize our condition of unworthy, our condition of sin that we yet again just say, Jesus, thank you for your forgiveness and your grace. And if you've never invited Jesus to truly forgive you of your sin and begin to follow him, I would encourage you to not take communion until you're ready to say that, until you can say that. Because it, it, this is for those that have said, I, I'm ready, okay? That's what's important. So I couldn't think of a better time for you to say, okay, Jesus, it's, it's time. And whether you prayed just a moment ago or you need to pray right now, this is your time. You're invited to the table. For all of us now, would you take the, the bread and let's eat the bread and let's say thank you. Thank you, Jesus. What you paid for to just put me, place me a chair at your table. Thank you, Jesus. Now let's take the juice. Thank you, Jesus. You have washed our sin away by your blood. We can come before you. We thanked him. Now let's ask him. God, we ask for those that are orphaned, for those that are impaired in their freedom, that, they would, that you would find them, that they would approach your throne of grace with confidence. God, we pray for those that need a healing in their body. We thank you for what you've provided on the cross, not only a healing of our heart, but an opportunity to engage your kingdom on this side of heaven, that heaven would come to earth and there would be glimpses and moments of of absolute miracle and healing and perfection, just glimpses and moments of that. That's what you do when you heal a sick body supernaturally. We pray your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so God, we pray for those that have gotten a bad report. God, we pray for those that are struggling with the cancer. We, we pray for, for friends of mine even now whose, whose child had a small little, uh, had a stroke and is in incredibly critical uh, condition at 
the children's hospital this morning. We pray for that little five-year-old girl that kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven and somehow reach down and touch her and and God, raise her up. Lord, we just pray for the person on our right and on our left, and we just pray that they would, they would not wear that shame and that we would, we would humble ourselves before you and we would find our place at your table that you've prepared for us in the presence of our enemies. And you've anointed our head with oil, our cups overflow, and surely goodness and mercy and your grace will follow us all the days of our lives. And we can dwell in your kingdom, not just this kingdom. Kingdom, your kingdom forever and ever and ever because of not what we could do but because of what you have done and we remember that cross we remember that day we remember the blood we remember your body and we say thank you thank you thank you now come on all locations would you sing this together how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me And I once was lost But now I'm found I was blind But now I see an amazing grace An amazing grace How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but. 